0: One of his professors, he stated, began every new class by saying, Ladies and gentlemen, I am an atheist. And then he would explain why he was. Another professor, according to Robinson, had as his only requirement for the course a term paper. He told the students that anyone holding to a fundamental belief in God could not get higher than a C-. Another professor made some reference to the snake in Genesis and said, The whole thing was just somebody's idea of a sexual hang-up. When Robinson protested and offered a biblical viewpoint, he was told, Why don't you go to Asbury where all the conservatives are? Some of his professors accused him of being mentally ill because he believed in God. The Constitution stated that a student friend of Robinson's, the Reverend Charles Stopford, who is married, has six children, and pastors the Reedon United Methodist Church, said he believes Robinson has received a raw deal at the theology school. However, he said, I disagree with Dick that the faculty must all be professing Christians. Robinson thinks the problem at Chandler comes from younger faculty members who have come to the school from Yale. Chandler seems to have a preference for Yale men, according to Robinson, and the Yale men believe there is no God except when people love one another. That's God. There's nothing after death. Robinson also said that when he told one of his professors he believed that all of the Bible was salvation history, from Genesis to Revelation, the professor looked at him and said, You know, you represent a brand of Southern fundamentalism that I thought had died out 60 years ago. It was at Emory that Altzer launched his contribution to the Death of God School of Theology. When friends of Emory University asked questions about this, since the institution was supposed to be Christian, the president of the university defended Altzer. He believed and taught that the death of God is an historical event, that God has died in our cosmos, in our history, in our existence. He and William Hamilton joined in writing a book in which they said that the new theology hoped to give support to those who have chosen to live as Christian atheists. All of this is quite different from what historic Methodism has stood for, and John Wesley would be dismayed at what has transpired in the church he founded and the institutions that rose from the church. He would be astounded at the attitude of all too many clergymen and teachers toward the Bible he believed in and held to be without error. I have said that once biblical infallibility is discarded, it quickly leads to concessions that have little or nothing to do with error if we think of it as mistakes in dates, numbers, names, or scientific facts. Once inerrancy is lost, men go far beyond this kind of error and open the Bible wide to destructive tendencies that are of a different order entirely. This can be illustrated without difficulty outside of Methodism as well. William Barclay William Barclay has written a commentary of the New Testament. He does not hold to biblical infallibility. In his discussion of the virgin birth in Matthew's Gospel, Barclay says this, It is a doctrine which our church does not compel us to accept in the literal and physical sense. There is much more in this chapter than the crude fact that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin mother. Whether any church requires its clergy to accept the virgin birth or not is immaterial. Churches can and do err. And the record of the virgin birth has nothing whatever to do with error in the sense mentioned above. It is a story that purports to tell us how the birth of Jesus came about. From a scientific, biological standpoint, the virgin birth seems impossible, but no reputable scientist can say that the virgin birth is impossible. Science is based on observation. The most that a true scientist can say about the virgin birth is this, I do not know of any instance where it has occurred. What he cannot say is, there can be no virgin birth. For him to make the latter statement would be to get outside the realm of science and into the area of metaphysical. The scientist has no business going from science to metaphysics without telling his listener what he has done. He has ceased being a scientist as soon as he gets into metaphysics. Moreover the virgin birth involves the miraculous. Once miracles are denied then of course the virgin birth becomes an impossibility. But even here a scientist can do no more than say I do not know of any evidence to support miracles. He cannot say that miracles are impossible without getting into metaphysics and out of science. Undoubtedly, Matthew is saying clearly enough that he believes in miracles and that the virgin birth is a miracle. Here there is no textual or transmissional error in the common meaning of that term. It is a statement of fact. If Barclay wishes to deny this fact, he is free to do so, but he denies the miraculous at the same time. And to call the virgin Birth crude exhibits a bias that tells us a great deal about his presuppositions. Archbishop Temple Take the statement made by the late Archbishop William Temple in his book, Nature, Man and God. He says, The atheist who is moved by love is moved by the Spirit of God. An atheist who lives by love is saved by his faith in the God whose existence, under that name, he denies. This statement has nothing whatever to do with biblical infallibility, but it is the logical outgrowth of a denial of infallibility. Temple denies what the Bible affirms. Scripture teaches that the man who says he is an atheist is a fool, and there is salvation in none other than Jesus Christ. Yet Temple asserts that an atheist who denies Jesus can be saved. Temple's opinion judges that what Scripture teaches is untrue and then writes his own Scripture in place of what has been denied. The Barclay-Bruce Commentary Morton S. Insland, in a commentary series edited by William Barclay and F. F. Bruce, wrote one volume entitled, Letters to the Churches, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Speaking of the authorship, Insland says, Since he... The unknown author is writing in the name of Paul convinced that were Paul alive this is what he would have said. It is not surprising that he has adopted the innocent device to personal recipients. To style the author a Forger is nonsense. Enslin takes great liberties with Paul's letters to Timothy. First they were written after Paul was dead. Second he says that this writer supposes that this is what Paul would have written if he were alive. Third, the man who did this is not a forger. We must remember again that this has nothing whatever to do with error. Error is not in question here. What is in question is whether there was deception, fraud, and plain lying. If Paul's letters to Timothy were penned by someone else who wanted to make people think they came from the apostle, it is nothing else than false witness. If it had been done in such a manner that the readers would know it was not Paul who wrote it, then the device was unnecessary. Whichever route one chooses to go, it turns out that if Paul did not write the letters, then they were written with the intention to deceive. In Second Timothy, Paul claims to be alone with Luke. He longs to see Timothy and asks that he might bring Mark with him when he comes. He asks for his cloak as well as his books and parchments. All of this makes the book incredible, if it indeed was written by someone other than Paul. It is exceedingly far-fetched to suppose that one writing in the name of Paul after his death would have Paul ask for cloak and books and for Timothy to visit him. To accept the idea that someone else wrote it takes a credulity that is incredible. It is far easier to believe that it came from the pen of Paul unless one adopts the naked unbelief and the darkness of spiritual intellect displayed by influence in this commentary. What is perhaps most distressing of all is that William Barclay and F.F. F. Bruce are listed as the editors of this commentary series. That their names should be attached to a vehicle through which insulin can infect others and send forth this kind of pseudo-scholarship to the detriment of men's souls is unfortunate. In the same commentary series edited by Barclay and Bruce, Thomas Kepler authored a volume entitled Dreams of the Future, Daniel and Revelation. Kepler says that the book of Daniel reinterprets history from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the time of Judas Maccabeus and Antiochus IV, and written in 165 BC, fits better into the scheme and purpose of Daniel than if the book were written in the period of Nebuchadnezzar, predicting history for the next 450 years. In true apocalyptic fashion, he puts himself and his message as though it was before 400 B.C. Not to defraud, but to impress people with his message which he feels is inspired by God to encourage the people of his day. Who the writer of Daniel is, we cannot know. Kepler here is not talking about error at all. He is not saying that the book of Daniel has incorrect information, that its chronology is wrong, or that the writer got his sequences mixed up. He has gone far beyond the question of error. He has decided that the book of Daniel was not written by Daniel, although it claims to be, and Jesus attributes the book to him. He is saying that by writing the book after the events took place rather than before makes it a better book. He says that the writer did not intend to defraud the people, only to impress them with the message he feels is inspired by God, not a message he is sure is inspired by God. Clearly, if the book was written by someone other than Daniel, the writer, by using Daniel's name, thought he gained an advantage the book would not have had if his own name had been attached to it. He was telling lies for a good purpose. Since his intention was laudable, we can overlook the fraud. In other words, let us sin that grace may abound. Or, to further the work of God by deceit and lying is legitimate, so long as the intention is good. Despite the disclaimer of the commentator that we cannot know who the author of Daniel was, there is another possibility. It was written by Daniel, as the book itself claims, and as Jesus attests. Why should we believe Kepler more than Scripture and regard him as a better commentator than Jesus Christ, whom Scripture tells us was omniscient? In any event, Kepler has gone far beyond the realm of error as we think of it, which always happens sooner or later when biblical infallibility is abandoned. One other illustration will suffice for our purpose here. Yet we must remember that it is possible to produce hundreds of illustrations that show that once biblical inerrancy is scrapped, those who no longer believe it go on from there to entertain opinions that eat at the heart of both revelation and inspiration, making both a shambles. George A. F. Knight wrote the volume, Prophets of Israel, number one, Isaiah, as part of a series edited by William Barclay and F. F. Bruce. He outdoes those who believe in two Isaiahs. He believes in three Isaiahs. In the introduction to his volume, Knight says Number 1. Chapters 1 to 23 and 28 to 34 are substantially from the hand of the prophet whose name we know as Isaiah, and who lived in Jerusalem in the second half of the 8th century BC. 2. Chapters 40 to 55 come from an anonymous prophet who was alive about 540 BC as the exile in Babylonia drew to a close. We call him 2nd Isaiah for convenience. Number 3. Chapters 56 to 66 are the work of one or more unknown servants of God who belonged to the generation that returned to Jerusalem between 537 and about 515 BC. For convenience, once again, we call this section by the name 3rd Isaiah, even though it is not from a single hand. Knight goes on later to make this interesting observation. We need not hesitate to call the whole 66 chapters of our book by the name Isaiah. The latter half of Isaiah is, we remember, anonymous. In consequence, we do not need to hesitate about agreeing with the words used by the disciple Philip, Acts chapter 8, verses 27 to 35. At the moment when we heard the Ethiopian eunuch read aloud from Isaiah 53 the words, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, Philip, we are told, understood he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Whatever knight may say, if it is true that Isaiah did not write the latter half of the prophecy that goes under his name, then the time has come for us to give it another name by which the reader would know that it was not Isaiah who wrote it. What I have already said in my correspondence with Dr. Allen of the Southern Baptist Convention pertains here too. Many scholars have written other commentaries on Isaiah and they have said that Isaiah wrote the entire book. Why do we need to accept what Knight wrote and not what evangelical scholars have written when they favor for the unity of the prophecy of Isaiah? Somehow, liberal scholarship that denigrates and degrades Scripture seems more attractive to younger men and students who are not mature in the Christian faith. Somehow, the spirit of unbelief seems to prevail when the choice must be made between what the Scripture itself declares and what scholars who disagree with Scripture say. Once again, I draw attention to what really happens. Liberal scholarship stands in judgment on Scripture and on God to the disadvantage of both. Recapitulation. The time has come to recapitulate what has been said. This book is not about denominations and parachurch groups that are well along in their journey away from biblical inerrancy. It is written about the present struggle over inerrancy as that struggle is being fought among those who lay claim to the name evangelical, conservative, conservative evangelical, or even neo-evangelical. The purpose of this chapter has been to show how the situation grows worse when infallibility has been surrendered. This was illustrated by examples of people affiliated with groups that abandoned inerrancy decades ago. The signs are there for all to read. Evangelicals who have given up on biblical infallibility must be brought to see what follows after a denial of inerrancy. No doubt many of them really believe they will never surrender their belief in any other major doctrines of the Christian faith. Probably many of them would protest that they would never do what the people I have used for illustrations have done. But the abandonment of inerrancy opens the door wide to such deviations, and multitudes of others who felt the same way at one time have made these further concessions. And it has always been attended by a decline in Christian zeal and evangelistic outlook, as well as in one's ethical life. I do not deny that many of those who have given up infallibility are truly regenerated. In that sense, they are my brethren. They are to be found among my former colleagues at Fuller Seminary, for whom I have the deepest affection. They are in the Missouri Synod, the Evangelical Covenant Church, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Evangelical Theological Society, and the American Scientific Affiliation. They are to be found in other evangelical denominations, Christian institutions, and parachurch groups. I truly believe that many of them would rather die than repudiate biblical truth having to do with salvatory data and with scripture that involves matters of practice. But the weight of history and all the evidence it supplies leads me to no other conclusion than that even if these friends are able to stop at this point, those who follow after them will not stop where they have stopped the second generation will follow through on the implications contained in the abandonment of inerrancy and will make concessions on questions that pertain to matters of faith and practice as well as to matters of history, science and chronology when inerrancy goes, it opens a small hole in the dike And if that hole is not closed, the levee will collapse, and the whole land will be overrun with the waters of unbelief, not unlike that exhibited by Boltman and the theological liberalism. Page 161, Chapter 9. Discrepancies in Scripture. I do not wish, with a casual wave of my hand, to dismiss the questions that critics have raised about errors in Scripture. However, I do not think the problem areas constitute a threat to biblical infallibility, nor do I think that there are any insoluble difficulties. This does not mean that I can provide a ready solution to every datum raised by those who oppose inerrancy. I can say, however, that a multitude of what formerly were difficulties have been solved, so that the detractors have had to backwater again and again. But as each apparent discrepancy is resolved, another objection is raised. Although in hundreds of cases, criticisms of scripture have been shown to be unfounded, those who refuse to believe in inerrancy never seem to be satisfied. Why is this so? Does it not constitute a frame of mind that wants to disbelieve? Does it reflect a viewpoint that says in effect, I will not believe what the scripture teaches about itself until every objection has been answered to my satisfaction? Does not this tell us something about the nature of man who though he may be regenerated yet retains strong characteristics of the old nature so that unbelief crops up again and again? May not the real difficulty be a want of biblical faith rather than a want of evidence? How do people like myself who believe in inerrancy answer the claims of those who espouse errancy when they say we need inerrancy as a security blanket and that we believe that to give up this notion would be to scrap the entire Christian faith? I do not know anyone who believes in inerrancy who says that if one error were found in scripture he would then give up the Christian faith in its entirety. Nor do I know any evangelical believer in inerrancy who uses it as a security blanket. He accepts it, not because it makes him feel comfortable, but because it is taught in Scripture, just as the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus, and the bodily resurrection of our Lord from the dead are taught in Scripture. Moreover, he has the witness of the Holy Spirit to which, for example, the Westminster Confession makes reference. It says, Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Adolf Saphir on the Veracity of Scripture I cannot deal with the whole range of alleged discrepancies or errors in the Bible, nor do I need to. But there are a few points that can and should be made so that believers in inerrancy can know they have a strong case, not a weak one. The first point that should be made concerns past history. Adolf Saphir, in his book, The Divine Unity of Scripture, says, The evidence for the accurate veracity of the history of the Bible is accumulating day by day and comes to us from all sources, and if I may say so, from independent and impartial and oftentimes hostile sources. I believe that it is all actual history at the same time I must confess that it is difficult that it is impossible to realize it unless there is given to us grace. The scripture history does not demand credit merely. The scripture demands faith. There are those who thought that Abraham was a mythical figure or if historical, he came from a backward and uneducated people. Zephyr observes Professor Sace, before the Victoria Institute in 1889, said, How highly educated this old world was, we are just beginning to learn. It has long been tacitly assumed by the critical school that writing was not only a rare art in Palestine before the age of David, but was practically unknown. But this assumption can no longer be maintained. Long before the Exodus, Canaan had its libraries and its scribes its schools, and its literary men. Skeptics once believed that the census of Cyrenius, who was governor of Syria, was an error on the part of Luke. Now we know that he was accurate. In 1967, the New Catholic Encyclopedia, which was quoted earlier, says flat-footedly, Darius the Mede did not succeed Belshazzar, that is, Belshazzar of Daniel 5.30. Recent evidence indicates that Darius the Mede can be identified with Gubara, whom Cyrus appointed as governor of Babylonia after the death of Yugbara, who survived his brilliant capture of Babylon by only three weeks. Gubara the Mede, or Darius, continued in office until 521 BC, although Cyrus himself seems to have assumed the title of king of Babylon within two years after Gubara's appointment. There was a time when the skeptics doubted what the Bible said about the Hittites. It was not believed that such a people ever existed. Today, no one in his right mind would make this kind of statement. But how was it possible for scholars to have asserted this in years gone by? Two things may be said. First, there was no evidence at the time for their existence external to the Bible itself. Second, it shows that the skeptics did not believe the Bible unless what the Bible said could be supported by external evidence. This meant that the Bible was not looked upon as a reliable source of information. It demonstrated the fact that such people came to the Bible with a predisposition to disbelieve what they could not see demonstrated outside of Scripture. Thus, another authority was set above the Bible and became the critic of Scripture instead of letting Scripture sit over other authorities. Errors Alleged by Robert Mounce A recent example of alleged discrepancies in the Bible by an evangelical may be seen from the article Clues to Understanding Biblical Accuracy, written by Robert H. Mounts a former student of mine, who was at that time, but is no longer, an associate professor of biblical literature and Greek at Bethel College, St. Paul, Minnesota. He authors the column, Here's My Answer, for Eternity, which published the article. Dr. Mounts cast his vote in favor of limited inerrancy. His conclusion is indicative of this. He said, Are there errors in the Bible? Certainly not, so long as we are talking in terms of the purpose of its authors and the acceptable standards of precision of that day. It is a counsel of despair to hold that all such variations, such as the 23,000 and the 24,000 of 1 Corinthians 10.8 and Numbers twenty-five verse nine, did not also exist in the autographs. For the purpose that Paul had in mind, it simply made no difference. His concern was to warn against immorality, not to give a flawless performance in statistics. End of quote. What Dr. Mounce is saying should be clear enough. Paul was using this incident to make a spiritual point. The use of this statistic was incidental to the point he was making. The fact that he was wrong in the use of the number constitutes no problem. It was not a flawless performance to be sure, but the truth shines through the error. Jesus as David's son. Dr. Mounts cites four examples of error in the Bible. One can only suppose that he has chosen these four because he thinks they are foolproof. In the interest of my thesis, we should take a look at his allegations. The first one is taken from the life of Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels, where he engages in a discussion with the Pharisees about David's son. He specifies Matthew 22:42 where according to Matthew Jesus says, "What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he?" Luke places a different set of words in Jesus's mouth. "How can they say that the Christ is David's son?" Luke 20:41 From a strictly literal standpoint, Jesus must have said one or the other, or neither. And then he concludes that literalistic inerrancy has already begun to shade off into a divine adequacy in terms of the purpose of the author. Unfortunately, Dr. Mounts has failed to do justice to the scripture in this case. His argument that Jesus must have said one or the other or neither leaves out an alternative. Jesus could have said both of these things without there being any problem. Let me illustrate it by bringing the scriptures into harmony at this point. The solution is that both what Matthew writes and what Luke writes were part of the total conversation, and much more than appears in either or both accounts may have been said. But what is said by both authors does not contradict each other. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? It becomes apparent that Matthew is quoting one part of the conversation and Luke another. The part quoted by Luke follows closely after the words of Jesus in Matthew. Then each writer goes on from there and makes the clinching point with the quotations from the Psalms. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make thy enemies a stool for thy feet. Thus there is no error, no incongruence, no real problem of any kind, at least not in the words of Scripture. The Case of the Molten Sea The measurements of the Molten Sea as described in Second Chronicles 4 verse 2 is the second problem that bothers Mounts. He writes the following. The Molten Sea is said to be round, ten cubits from brim to brim, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. Since the circumference of a circle is pi times d, or 3.14159 times the diameter, it would be impossible for a round vessel to have a diameter of 10 and a circumference of 30. The rough measurements of antiquity do not have to conform to space age requirements. In the culture of that day, the measurement was not only adequate, but also inerrant. In our determination of what constitutes an error, we must judge the accuracy of Scripture according to the prevailing standards of the time. End of quote. I must say that in the culture of that day or of any day, the figures are wrong if the Scripture is giving us this information the way Dr. Mounts understands it. Two and two make four, and they did in Solomon's time, just as they do in Mounts' time. To say that 2 and 2 make 5 and then excuse it because it was said 3,000 years ago in a different culture hardly makes good sense. Now how do we respond to Maltz's allegation? First, let us agree that the people of that day may have been ignorant of that branch of mathematics called geometry. I am not saying this was so. I merely grant it for convenience sake. Thus they did not know about pi or its value. But I cannot agree with the implication contained in the phrase, the rough measurements of antiquity. A cubit was a cubit was a cubit. It had a specific length. And any carpenter who wanted to lay out a cubit five times or ten times or a hundred times would have produced as accurate a measurement as any carpenter who has a yardstick in his possession is capable of doing today. I can only conclude that those who constructed the molten sea were capable of measuring what they had constructed. And they measured the diameter as well as the circumference. And what they recorded was absolutely accurate, not just a rough measurement. How could this have come about? A cubit is equal to 18 inches. A hand breadth is equal to 4 inches. These are the significant data. 10 cubits equal 180 inches, 30 cubits equal 540 inches. But we must remember that the wall of the molten sea was a hand in thickness. This means that it was 4 inches wide from the exterior of the vessel to the interior where the liquid filled it. What happened was simple indeed. When the diameter was measured, the measurement was taken from the outside perimeter. And it was 10 cubits or 180 inches. But when they used their measuring instruments for the circumference, they did not measure it from the outside, but from the inside. It measured 30 cubits or 540 inches. Now see what this does. If we allow for the 8 inches for the two sides of the molten sea, it means that the diameter was 180 inches, less 8 inches or 172 inches. And when 172 is multiplied by 3.14, the value of pi, the result is 540.08, which is quite accurate. In other words, when diameter is measured the same way the circumference was measured, there is no discrepancy at all. Dr. Mops is wrong, and scripture is right. And we should expect that it would be, for they had adequate measuring instruments, so that nothing was left to chance or to guesstimate. David and Abiathar the high priest Dr. Mount's third example of error is adduced as follows In Mark 2.26 Jesus refers to David entering the house of God and eating the bread of the presence where Abiathar was high priest But in 1 Samuel 21 verse 1 it is Ahimelech the son of Abiathar who was priest at that time most explanations of this mistake are highly fanciful and much harder to accept than the more obvious possibility that no greater degree of precision should be required. End of quote. Dr. Mounts is mistaken at several points and the difficulty he alludes to lies in his own imagination. In the first place he is mistaken when he says that the Ahimelech of First Samuel 21 verse 1 was the son of Abiathar. The reverse is true. Abiathar was the son of Ahimelech who was the son of Ahitub. Abiathar succeeded his father as high priest after Ahimelech had been murdered. Abiathar did have a son named Ahimelech. The son was named after his grandfather, the father of Abiathar. But to confuse the first Ahimelech with the grandson is an error. Mark 2.26 does not say that Abiathar was present when the incident involving his father occurred. He may have been. Like some other commentators, Matthew Henry suggests this concerning Mark's account. He says, This, it is said, David did in the days of Abiathar the high priest, or just before the days of Abiathar, who immediately succeeded Ahimelech his father in the pontificate, and it is probable was at that time his father's deputy or assistant in the office, And he it was who escaped the massacre and brought the ephod to David. Haley says that the expression in Mark may denote merely that Abiathar was acting as his father's Sagan or substitute. Or since Abiathar was, from his long association with King David, much more famous than his father, his name, although he was not yet high priest, may be used here by a kind of historical anticipation. Robertson suggests that apparently Ahimelech, not Abiathar, was high priest at this time. It is possible that both father and son bore both names 1 Samuel 22, verse 20, 2 Samuel 8, verse 17, and 1 Chronicles 18:16, verse Abiathar mentioned, though both involved. Mark 2:26 does not say that David dealt with Abiathar. It can be read that the incident occurred during the times of Abiathar, who was high priest. But his identification as high priest in this manner does not mean that he was high priest when the event took place. It is not uncommon to say, for example, that a certain event took place during the times of George Washington, who was President of the United States. But this does not mean that the specific incident referred to happened while Washington was President. The words President of the United States do no more than identify the man who was President and speak of his times, not necessarily of the period when he was President. To call the various explanations fanciful and harder to accept than the obvious possibility that no greater degree of precision should be required tells us that Mounts is looking hard to find an error and if this is the best he can come up with, his case is weak indeed. If there is any possible alternative, the word of God should be given the benefit of the doubt. The case of the missing thousand. The last problem Dr. Mounts mentions is the difference in numbers where Paul in 1 Corinthians reports that 23,000 fell in a single day while the account in Numbers 25 verse 9 says 24,000. Mounts argues We need not make ourselves ridiculous by following the suggestion that the other fatalities took place during the night. It is a counsel of despair to hold that all such variations did not also exist in the autograph. In plain English, he is saying he has found a demonstrable error in which one writer reported a figure that was a thousand less than the other. How do we handle this one? First, I think we can assume that there are no manuscript problems here. C.I. Schofield does suggest in this connection the possibility of a scribal error involving transmission, since the Hebrew numbers can be easily confused because of the way they were written. It is also Schofield who suggests the possibility that Paul gives the number of deaths in one day, a possibility that Mounts discards by suggesting it is ridiculous. There have been more difficult problems resolved by such ridiculous possibilities, but there are other answers that are very satisfactory. One of them comes from the pen of John Calvin. He says, But although they differ about the numbers, it is easy to reconcile their statements, for it is not unheard of when there is no intention of making an exact count of individuals to give an approximate number. For example, there are those whom the Romans call the centumviri, the hundred, when in fact there were a hundred and two of them. Therefore, since about 24,000 were destroyed by the hand of the Lord, in other words, over 23,000, Moses gives the upper limit, Paul the lower, and so there is really no discrepancy. The story is to be found in Numbers 25, verse 9. Calvin, of course, is saying what we all know to be common today. Let's suppose the actual number of people who died was about 23,500. It would be both easy and correct for one to use the 24,000 figure and the other to use the 23,000 figure, since both were speaking in round numbers. And indeed, there is no error unless Mount wants to insist that the writers of Scripture should not use round numbers or for him to impose his own intentions on them by saying that Paul was mistaken in using the 24,000 figure simply because more than 23,000 died is self-defeating. Leon Morris, a respectable scholar, provides still another possibility that neatly handles the problem. He says that judgment came in the form of a plague and 24,000 people perished. Paul speaks of 23,000 obviously both use round numbers and in addition Paul may be making some allowance for those slain by the judges numbers 25 verse 5 a careful reading of the account in numbers makes this a distinct possibility but whether one chooses Calvin's or Morris's solution there is an answer to the problem that will satisfy anyone who is willing to look at it fairly and will recognize that it was something that we could easily do today without any intention of making an error or being thought of by those who read us as having made an error. The error appears only to those who read the account superficially and have not probed into the real possibilities. Daniel Fuller and the Mustard Seed In an earlier chapter I mentioned the views of Professor Daniel Fuller of Fuller Theological Seminary. In his public lectures, one of the examples he constantly injects to show that there are errors in the non-revelational portions of Scripture is found in Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. Dr. Fuller alleges that botanically we know that there are smaller seeds than the mustard seed, and that is true. Then he argues that Jesus accommodated himself to the ignorance of the people to whom he was speaking since they believed this. But it constitutes an error, and the presence of one error invalidates the claim to biblical inerrancy. The American commentary says of this passage that it was popular language.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.